I think I thought of myself as more American, but I think I also thought of the two lives, like as I grew up, because my kind of school life was so compartmentalized from my life within the South Asian community, it did feel like kind of two identities. And I think comedy ended up being more in the Western identity. So it felt harder to blend the two after the fact. And I also think I was maybe more protective of my South Asian identity where I felt like more wary about misstepping. So it felt a little bit more maybe unsafe to do jokes about that when I didn't feel like maybe my place in that community felt as assured. Besharam, Batamiz, Chi Chi, Gandhi, Jalahata, Toba Toba, Oho, Bad Betty. I'm Sangeeta Pillai, and this is the Masala Podcast. This multi-award-winning feminist podcast for and by South Asian women is all about cultural taboos from sex, sexuality, mental health, menopause, to nipple hair, and more. This season is a US special, and it took me by surprise. You see, I interviewed these incredible South Asian American women I expected to hear some angst around identity and belonging. Instead, they told me how comfortable they were with both their South Asian and American identity. I confess, this is not the podcast season I set out to record. It's so much more powerful. I had the most thought-provoking chat with Aparna Nancharla. She's an LA-based comedian, actor and writer who performs all over the US and worldwide. Her TV stand-up appearances include Netflix's The Stand-Ups, HBO's Two Dope Queens, and Comedy Central's The Half Hour. Aparna was also a series regular on Comedy Central's Corporate and appeared many times on HBO's Crashing. She's also made late-night appearances on The Late Late Show with James Corden, and Late Night with Stephen Colbert. Aparna's got a book of personal essays coming out called Unreliable Narrator, which I'm really looking forward to reading because I love Aparna's gentle style of comedy. I was pretty shy and I think my mom was often worried, you know, that I was like too timid for the world and that like people would take advantage of me or I just like couldn't stand up for myself. So I think I, I started a lot of my younger life as kind of an observer, like kind of taking in everyone else and maybe not sure what my place was and maybe not just as a South Asian person, but I think just as a person in general, I sometimes didn't know how I fit in socially with even in like majority South Asian environments. Like I just felt like maybe quieter than the person next to me and mm. and not sure how to conduct myself. And I think also I had a lot of anxiety at that age. So I wasn't sure, you know, if that was something everyone experienced or just something I had to kind of navigate on my own. I don't think I had a word for it for many years. So it was just kind of informing a lot of that early childhood. And yeah. Did you have any friends? Did you have many friends in, in the school that you were in or the neighborhood that you lived in? 
Yeah, like we, my sibling and I definitely were friends with like the neighborhood kids. And then I had friends in school, but I think it was very kind of compartmentalized where maybe I wouldn't see my school friends outside of that environment. And like, I would see neighborhood friends in the neighborhood, but it wasn't, I think socializing outside the family wasn't necessarily like a priority or like something my parents were seeking out other than maybe like cultural events or like community events that are were more South Asian focused. I realized that growing up in India meant that I was always part of South Asian culture and communities. It's only now when I live in the West that I realize I didn't need to question my cultural identity like a lot of folks who grew up outside the homeland, so to speak. Being brown and Indian, like everyone else on the street, meant I could take my Indianness for granted. I ate mostly the same Indian food like all my neighbors. Except maybe we made a lot more fish curries from Kerala. I wore the same sort of clothes as my other little friends, usually midi dresses in crumpled printed cotton or pinafores in bleached white. Our skin turned the exact same shade of burnt brown from playing outside in the sun. Of course, as I grew up, I questioned a lot of things as a young woman. But my Indianness wasn't one of them. And for that, I am grateful. So let's talk about comedy. When was the first time you found comedy or comedy found you? Yeah, I think I was always attracted to kind of silliness and goofiness. And my mom definitely has a playfulness about her that I think, you know, sometimes she would go into that gear and then sometimes she would be more serious. But I think it was always like, it felt like something was lighter or more possible when we were in that kind of sillier, goofier mode. And I think I observed like, you know, class clowns and like people who were more immediately like funny in their environment. And I was kind of like, I want to do something like that, but I didn't know what my own entry point into it would be. Mm. And then, so I sort of just started taking in more comedy as I got older And, you know, this was before YouTube and like the internet. So there wasn't quite the accessibility that there is now of, you know, having a career or pursuing something in that field. So I think the first time I tried it, my friend and I went to like a stand-up comedy open mic over the summer when I was home from college. And I think he was definitely interested in stand-up and he was like, I think I'm going to try it. So we both kind of made a promise to each other that we'd both try it one time before the summer was up and so I think that was the first time I ever went up was maybe on my 20th birthday I believe it was but I think it helped to have kind of that agreement with someone else because otherwise I think I would have maybe talked myself out of it (laughs) and I just you know prepared some basic material about like what my life was like around then and I was living at home with my parents and just had some summer jobs. So I just kind of did some jokes around that. And it went better than I thought. Like Mm -hmm. I thought it was just going to go horribly. And then I would be like, well, I tried that and now I'm moving on. But it went well enough that I think I was like, oh my gosh, like maybe this is something that I could keep exploring and like see where it goes. 
But after that, I, I actually, I tried it maybe like a handful of times in college, like just at student events, but I really didn't start pursuing it until after I graduated and moved back home. So it was kind of like, I tried it and then essentially it took four years to be like, well, maybe, <laughs> maybe let's try it again. What was um, the reaction of the family? Did you ever have a conversation saying, mom, dad, I'm going to be a comedian? I don't think I officially ha had that talk with them. It was more even for me, something that mm. the more I did it, the more I was like, I guess this is something I'm mm. pursuing actively. I think I've always kind of approached things in my life with this kind of tentative nature. So I'm always mm. like wary to put a label on it too soon. So I think like it was way after the fact that I even called myself a comedian mm. and I think the first time I really had to negotiate with them about it was when I had been, because I stayed in DC for like four to five years and then decided to move to Los Angeles to kind of pursue it more seriously. And I think that was the first time they really felt like I was making a statement of like, okay, mm -hmm. I want to actually upend my life and make this uh, my job. And I think like most parents, they were worried about my financial security, but they never mm. discouraged me in the sense of like, don't do this. It's a bad idea. It was more just like, but also, why don't you go to grad school while you do this? <laughs> and I was just like, I don't think that's what I want to do. And yeah, for whatever reason, they, they've been very open-minded about, I think, my choices. That's wonderful because most yeah. South Asian parents, as we know, that's, you know, unless you're a doctor, lawyer, engineer. Yeah, it's quite course. tricky, right? So I guess, yeah, that's really, really. And really they had encouraged me early on mm. to like, yeah, they were like, are you sure you don't want to go into medicine? Like, are you sure you don't want to mm. get, a, you know, more degrees? But yeah, I think I've always in my own kind of quiet way, like been pretty stubborn about like the way I want to go. What was it like, though, as a young brown woman trying to break into comedy and make it into comedy? Was it difficult? Was it easy? Again, I think it helped being in like a diverse area that mm. it wasn't like so unexpected for me to to try this. I definitely wasn't one of like several women of color doing comedy, but there were like at least a handful of other women. And I knew there had been like a South Asian woman who had done comedy in the area maybe a couple of years previously and then lived in New York at the time. So I think there were enough examples for me that I didn't feel like maybe like, oh, this is something no one like me has ever done before. But I do mm. think there were ways also that maybe helped me that I didn't even realize at the time. Like my material was very much in the everyday and the mundane and mm. kind of the trivialness of life. And I think sometimes women and comedians or people of color get kind of shoehorned into maybe doing a lot of identity-based material. Mm. And I kind of didn't mm. go that route when I started, not reason other than I, it just wasn't like what inspired mm. me to write about. And I think sometimes I would get praised for that just because people would be like, oh, you're, you're kind of doing something different than like other people like you have done before. And I think it it was a little bit conflicting to hear that because in some ways you don't want to mm. be like the exception that's like for reasons of you're just erasing your identity completely. But I think I was so new at the time, I sort of was like, oh, I guess this is the right way or something. <laughs> like I didn't quite know what to make of it at the time. What was your identity? Like what did you think of yourself as 
American, South Asian, somewhere in the middle? What? Yeah, I think I thought of myself as more American, but I think I also thought of the two lives. Like as I grew up, because my kind of school life was so compartmentalized from my life within the South Asian community, it did feel like kind of two identities. And I think comedy ended up being more in the Western identity. Mm. So it felt harder to blend the two after the fact. Mm. And I also think I was maybe more protective of my South Asian identity where I felt like more wary about misstepping. So it mm. felt a little bit more maybe unsafe to do Mm. jokes about that when I didn't feel like maybe yeah. my place in that community felt as yeah. assured. It's so common, you know, this double identity thing. Like every yeah. guest I've ever spoken to kind of talks about trying to balance these two worlds. Right. This kind of Western world and this kind of South Asian world and some almost at home I'm like wearing a salwar kameez and eating samosas and outside I'm right. know, whatever, eating burgers and whatever the equivalent. But it is almost feels like it's how we survive. Mm. We build these two worlds and we kind of exist within these two worlds and they don't necessarily meet a lot of times. Yeah, I mean, I remember distinctly, like I took classical dance growing up and mm. I remember there was like a Lunar New Year celebration at my high school and, and my sibling and I performed one of our dances at the celebration. And I just remember like there was a sound guy who was maybe like, a white kid and I I think I saw him doing something that seemed like he was making fun of us and I just mm. like it sort of just reiterated my feeling of like why it felt better to keep them separate where I was just like mm. you don't understand like what this mm. is or what this means to me mm. and it feels like not worth it to try to explain yeah, it to you yeah, yeah yeah that's kind of sad but I understand it's like you're you're so protective of this part of yourself yeah that if other people don't see it or make fun of it, which is really hurtful, isn't it? So you'd rather keep it yeah. private. Oh, I completely get it. So Aparna, you talk a lot about mental health in your comedy, right? Why is this important to you? I think, I mean, it came about kind of unintentionally. I was hmm. struggling with, I think, a low point with depression at the time. And maybe my anxiety around performing had gotten kind of unmanageable. And I think I started writing about it really from a place of being at a loss of like how to move forward. Mm. And I didn't really write about it with the thought that like, oh, and now I can turn this into material and and mm. that will like fix it for me. But more just like, I don't know what else to do. I'm kind of in this stuck mm. place. And my usual thing is to create something. So let me just like write about it. Mm. I think when I first tried it on stage, I really wasn't expecting anything out of the ordinary, but I think people responded to it in a way that kind of surprised me. And mm. I didn't even kind of think, you know, as you do it, when you're, when you embody an identity, I, I didn't think of myself of like, oh, like a woman of color talking about mental health, like that's mm. kind of unusual. Like I, mm. I never thought of it that way. I think my mm point of view is has always been very much from the inside out so it's sort of just yeah. like well this is what's going on in my head so let me try to tell mm. you what it's like I guess it's sometimes with mental health it's very difficult to communicate how it feels isn't it like yeah for me, I find that really hard so I suffer from like anxiety depression I had a panic attack a couple of weeks ago 
So it kind of comes and goes and you just kind of learn to manage it, right? And live yeah. with it. And I guess sometimes it's very difficult to tell the outside world what that feels like, even if you are ready to. Sometimes you, you're not ready to, right? Right. So what I wanted to ask you was, what does it feel like for you, these, these things? What do they feel like? Anxiety, depression, whatever the issue is in your body, in your mind, what does it feel like? Yeah, I mean, I think as someone who lives a lot in my head, I have, I've been doing a lot of work in the past few years to kind of connect myself more with my body and how things show up mm. in my body. And so mm. I've been just more observant of that uh, mm. in the recent past. And I do think they physically, like it feels like they physically take up space just kind of by default. Like if mm. I am just like sitting, I can kind of be like, well, this, it feels like my you know, depression is like at this level and um, maybe it's lower today, but I still kind mm. of feel the presence of it. And then anxiety, mm. of course, feels a little more activating and kind of mm. you feel that that panicky feeling or the mm. that dread that mm. kind of moves through your whole body. But I, I do think it's like so I'm so used to it now that I can sort of immediately tell you like, oh, this is at, you know, this is low and this is high today or I still kind of struggle sometimes with the fact that other people don't experience the world the same way. Like I can't <laughs> imagine what your brain is doing if it isn't so like crowded by these two things. <laughs> what do people do when they have all the space in their mind, <laughs> yeah, right? <laughs> no, I get that completely, completely get that. I guess if you've lived with this as long as you have, and it sounds like you have for a long time, that state of being almost feels normal, doesn't it? Like it, that's just how it is. Right. I also struggle with knowing when it switches. Like sometimes I'm perfectly normal and then I won't realize that I'm anxious. Right. And then it, then like a couple of days down the line, oh shit, I started to feel anxious two days ago and I didn't really, my brain didn't clock it, you know. Yeah. And then it just catches you and you're like, oh my God, how am I feeling like this? It's awful. It's awful. Oh right. yeah, it's the, the old beast, you know, like, okay. <laughs> yeah that's Sometimes. the thing I've come to learn just how mm. cyclical it is and that mm. that I think kind of helps with the lower periods now like knowing mm. that okay this is temporary I don't know exactly how long it's gonna last this time but I've kind of come through this cycle before mm. like for me I've developed sort of in the in the past few years also PMDD which is just like worsening depression anxiety around my period mm. so it's like mm. well at least that gives it a little more of a schedule but yes. but, <laughs> but yes. besides that it still tends to fluctuate but it is it is kind of funny to be like, okay, this week, maybe don't schedule a lot. <laughs> so weird, isn't it? It's still such a taboo to talk about depression and anxiety in the world, right? Yeah. Whether it's the US, the UK, whatever, we are starting to have these conversations, but it's still not commonplace. Like, I always say this, you know, if I broke my leg, I tell someone, hey, look, my leg's broken. Yeah. And it's not a big deal, right? It still feels, I still hesitate to say, oh, I'm having a really bad day I'm really anxious or I had a panic attack or whatever it's there's still that kind of oh we don't really say this in public that's what I found really interesting is just that it has as you're saying entered the cultural conversation a lot more like definitely I see like Gen Z talking very openly mm. about their mental health and kind of even having a shorthand for a lot of therapy language but I feel like 
like even in talking about mental health in my work, I feel like there's a distance between like me talking about it in a sort of polished and like mm. funny way versus mm. like the actual experience of it mm. is so much different mm. and so much messier and so much yes. maybe more frustrating to deal with if you're friends with someone with anxiety where it's like they maybe cancel at the last minute or mm. for whatever reason, they're kind of at the whim of their own brain. And I feel like that aspect of it hasn't really been, yeah, I guess the conversation is maybe not at the full level of nuance that, that yeah. it could be. I guess part of it is, it's not that long ago that people we locked up, right? Mm -hmm. And particularly women, like there's so much history about like hysteria. Yeah. If you, you can't understand why this woman's behaving like this, say, I don't know, 80 years ago, 100 years ago, you just lock her up. And I guess somewhere in our bodies or our psyche, we still carry that, I'm sure. Yeah. And I wonder if that's part of the hesitations. And I can't really say this because what are people going to think of me? Or where am I going to end up? Yeah. I mean, I think I still feel that kind of that judgment of women as like too emotional or rational yes. where around my period, I'll, I will behave in a way that even to me, I'm sort of like, I don't know why I'm acting like this. And then <laughs> it feels like it feeds into that narrative of just like, we're, you know, we're like erratic creatures and yes. we don't even know what is happening to us. So it's like, what? why should we be trusted with our own minds? Like, yeah, I think there is a lot around women's brains that is so questioned uh, as yeah. to like their own autonomy over them. Yeah. Do you remember when I think somewhere, I think in one of your sketches you talk about, or maybe in the interview, about first starting to experience these symptoms when you were in college? Mm -hmm. Do you remember what kind of started or what happened? Yeah. I mean, my depression was maybe there from a younger age, but I think it didn't kind of reach a level where it was affecting my ability to live my life until college. And it actually first manifested as eating disorder where I was restricting my eating. I was like running on the cross country team at school at the time. And I think I sort of started engaging in these e restrictive eating behaviors as a form of control, but then it felt like it really was just kind of a mask for this depression I was struggling with. That was kind of an existential depression, but also just, yeah, feeling kind of stuck in general in my life and like as a person. And I think once I was able to name that, that kind of helped resolve the, the eating behaviors. But there was some relief in, I think, being able to name it because I think for mm. so long I had just sort of thought it was this thing that just lived in me that I didn't really know how to make sense of. I experience panic attacks and sometimes severe anxiety. When it happens, it's like a million thoughts falling over each other, boom, 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 in my mind until I'm exhausted. My body becomes a combination of fizzing, popping, adrenaline, and also the inability to move. My mind goes into a sort of lockdown. I can try and move, but I won't go very far. Everything slows down. I function at the most basic level. Sleeping, eating, watching TV. 
I find myself unable to do all the things that give me joy. My work, my writing, my workshops, even my podcast. I then exist in a limbo where every step and every move feels like walking through jelly or like trudging through a field of heavy mulch, all of it sticking to my legs. Usually, it's a waiting game. I have to slow down, wait for this phase to pass. But these days, the jelly phases, as I call them, are getting shorter and I'm getting quicker at coming out of them. And when I do come out of them, it's like the world waits for me, fresh and new and shining. I guess the other aspect of it is in our culture, in South Asian culture, we just don't talk about mental health. Yeah. Right. It just doesn't exist as a concept. And that feels like it's adding another layer of difficulty, right? Where we're taught to always have this mask on. Anybody asks you how you are, you, you, you're fine. Right. And especially like aunties, uncles visiting, you know, you're like, you're putting on a front and everything is good. Yeah. You know, even within families, if someone's struggling, the parents will never tell anyone outside that that person's struggling, their kids. It's just, you've got to put up this front. You've got to keep this mask on of everything's perfect. Right. And I still see this, see this among South Asian friends here in the UK. Yeah. What do you think of this? Like, where do you think it comes from? What What do you feel about this? Yeah, I... I it's interesting because I think at some point I thought maybe it was part of the here there, you know, with Asian Americans, sometimes there's the model minority myth where, you know, mm -hmm. you want to be seen as not a problem and like you're, you're easy mm -hmm. to deal with and you're not maybe causing any tension in your community. So I thought maybe some of it came from a place of that, of just keeping up appearances and kind of mm -hmm. staying under the radar in terms of any drama or stress but I think you're right I think it even comes from just some cultural norms around I don't know if it's like just the collectivist idea of like the group is more important than any individual problem mm. but I think mm. there is something also to just family like the family as a unit is maybe more important than any like individual mm. struggle within it yes. like you have to seem like a strong front to everyone else and like any conflict that's happening below the surface like does not need to be shown to other people. I've always wondered if it's like a a survival thing as well you know when you're operating in survival mode you cannot let anybody else see the weakness or the, the kind of the chink in the armor. Right. That's the mode of functioning. Right. Because to admit vulnerability is to make yourself weaker isn't it in front of someone else. Yeah. No, that's a great way of looking at it. Cause I know like, especially in my family, like my mom also struggles with anxiety and depression, I think it has been more open about her own mental health journey. And it's really my dad, who's kind of the one who's has kind of the most doubts about, uh, about like, you know, mm -hmm. mental illness and, and, you know, like seeing a therapist and he just like, doesn't, it's, I think he he just feels like 
what you're saying, where it's like, if you're having a problem, you kind of suck it up and keep moving. Yeah. Like you're not showing your weakness. Yeah. Like, how is that going to help you yeah. in any way? No, I've had friends, South Asian friends say all sorts of things. I had one friend say to me that um, when I was talking to her about, uh, I have this, you know, anxiety and depression. She's like, that's nothing. Just, just pray to, to the God, you know, and you'll be fine. And I'm like, Mm, if it were that easy I would do I would be the temple every day right 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 I know I know sometimes I am like whenever I get advice like that I am like wow if that like works for you I really like I wish I had that brain where you can just you know do the thing and check off the problem yeah have you had any like weird advice like this I I don't know if I've gotten that one, but I've gotten, you know, like, did you try taking a walk, you know, or like, are you drinking <laughs> enough water and, you know, things like just very general <laughs> self-care. And I'm like, sure, I think there are days when, where I could have drank more water, but I don't think that. <laughs> I don't think that's, that's going to manage thing. my yeah. anxiety. <laughs> Drinking like 20 pints of water yeah. isn't yeah. going to fix it. Hey, I wanted to pause this episode for a minute to share something that I'm really excited about. Podcasting changed my life. I went from typing into Google, what is a podcast? Yes, I did that. To creating the multi-award-winning Masala podcast. And now... I'd like to share some of my knowledge with you. I'm starting podcasting masterclasses on my website. And one of them has been created especially for women podcasters. Just go to my website, soulsutras.co.uk and look under courses. Or email me at podcasting at soulsutras.co.uk and I'll share details with you. I look forward to helping you on your podcasting journey. Hi, I'm Kabir. And I'm Yogi. Yes, we are two guys. And yes, we are in love. We are in India mein gay hona aur ek gay couple hona kya hota hai together we will try and decode that apni desi bhasha mein with generous helpings of desi style ashiki only in our podcast shuddh desi gay a spotify original produced by rm word pictures new episodes out every monday i was watching the documentary this morning laughing matters mm-hmm. um, where which is all about comedy and mental health comedians and mental yeah. health and features amazing comedians like Sarah Silverman, Rachel Bloom and of course you. And I loved it and I thought it was so real and also so uplifting. Yeah. It talks about like quite dark, you know, it's depression and, you know, comedy and how comedians are and how they deal with it. But yeah, ultimately it was absolutely uplifting. What how did you get involved in it? I believe that documentary I I'm not sure if the timeline was just a coincidence, but I do remember like a comedian had recently passed away after taking their own life. And I think this documentary was sort of out of the wake of that event of just like, we should be having more conversations about this, and especially like in the artistic community. And so I think I was brought in that way, just, you know, they had been familiar with some of the material I had done around my own anxiety and depression, but I do think, yeah, I'm always happy to kind of help mm. shed a light on these things. Cause I think for me mm. at this point, I'm not, I'm like very open in talking about it. And, and it, it, 
I, yeah, I want everyone to be able to have that freedom. Do you think life as a comedian kind of makes things harder if you suffer from depression and anxiety? I was just thinking about this. It's like you get up in front of people and you're telling all these jokes and everybody laughs and tells you how amazing you are. And then it kind of goes away. Yeah. And you don't know when the next time that is. So you're going from this lots of people, lots of adulation to, to nothing. I wonder if that's hard. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I absolutely, it's the worst career choice for my, <laughs> like, without question. I'm like, what is the most stressful environment to put someone with anxiety and depression in? How about something where you're constantly subjected to just random feedback and you, you just want like approval. And then if you don't get it, you're forced to admit that it was something about you that they didn't like or something about your the way you see the world so it is it is a little bit of a masochistic career choice I think <laughs> as someone with my type of brain but then it's like strange that so many comedians do deal with anxiety and depression yes. and I think some of it to me feels like having this kind of brain that's kind of just hyper vigilant and constantly kind of questioning things does feel like the flip side of the artistic brain where you're just like constantly asking like why why does the world work this way like th that's weird that people do that in this situation but then like you're it's sort of the flip side of of the darkness I think yeah and also I guess when you have the ability to make people laugh yeah right which is what you do as a comedian a you become immediately likable mm. which is not a bad thing yeah and also you bring people's defenses down, don't you? Right. And I'm sure that helps if your kind of brain is that way wired. You're like constantly worrying or constantly kind of thinking about things or overthinking it. Right. And this is what comedy does. So I can absolutely see why so many comedians who might have these issues have become comedians. Yeah. Totally makes sense. Totally. And I think also for me, I still have a lot of social anxiety and it feels mm. kind of more manageable to be like here are my prepared thoughts in a very like controlled you know scheduled environment and now and then afterwards I can retreat you know like it's it feels mm. more uh, like I have more autonomy over that than like a conversation at a, a party or something yeah 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 because you're managing it yeah true true I get that one of the comedians I don't remember who it was on that documentary spoke about loneliness as a comedian and just loneliness in society. And the fact that, again, I think they were talking about the same sort of thing. You're performing in front of thousands and thousands and people are clapping and telling you yeah. amazing. And then two days you go home and there's no one. Right. And there's nothing. Right. And he was talking about like that being really, really difficult. And the day before was the same, he said. Yeah. Do you find that or as you you might you might sound like a little bit of an introvert, so you're quite happy to kind of go and retreat and it doesn't bother you? Yeah, I think I think I don't mind. Yeah, being able to retreat. I think for me, that's actually sometimes helpful to recharge. Mm -hmm. But I do think uh, I relate to just the how erratic it can be between, you know, mm. all this feedback and like attention and mm. then suddenly nothing mm. like it's very yeah. hot and cold and it's not 
yeah, it's not like today I'm going to go to work and talk to these five people. It's kind of just like mm. thousand people today, six people the next day. Like, yeah. Zero the third. Yeah, yeah exactly. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. You're still doing the shows where it's like yeah, uh, yeah. 15 people are not interested. No, I get it. And for me, that's a struggle as well, because I work at home alone for myself and Sometimes I'm like doing podcasts like this or yeah. I'm speaking at events or talking to loads of people and you're on and you're up. Right. And you're like, you know, performing in a way. And then you go home and then it's really quiet yeah. for a couple of days. So I find that switch quite difficult. Yes. The switching on and the switching off. Yeah. So I completely can understand. I guess that's true of anybody who's performing or doing something that's kind of public facing I guess yeah yeah right. I think that is it's such a tricky thing with a front-facing career mm. where once it becomes mm. your job like mm. any other job there are days where you don't feel like going or and it's mm. funny when it's like a job where you're forced to engage and connect with people that sometimes you are maybe a little bit more on autopilot and and does yeah. that feel yeah. wrong on some level you know where it's like yeah. you're portraying this symbol of connection but then maybe you're not connecting to it in the same way yeah, every time yeah yeah and then you feel a sense of like oh my god I should really feel more, right. more connected so I feel quite guilty right right <laughs> and then I'm adding you, another layer yeah. on top of it because I think I constantly am also like what a lucky career you have to get to do this at all so yeah to not wake up every day just being so thankful and ready to go yeah sometimes feels very yeah guilt inducing or shame, yeah. shame and okay I'm not feeling on top of the world today <laughs> yeah, yeah. shit I really should because I'm so lucky to do the thing yeah, I'm doing yeah, yeah. right <laughs> no, I completely get that so I'm going to quote something that Rain Wilson said on the on the documentary that I really it really resonated with me he said we all have these kind of fucked up things that happen to us we can get through it and transform it and use it and I loved that because I feel like with a lot of creative people, comedians, writers, artists of any kind, it's actually the darkness, the anxiety, the, the kind of trauma that transforms into something beautiful. Yeah. And I don't mean we all have to be like tortured artists to create art, but art always comes. Good art, I genuinely believe, comes from trauma yeah. and, and angst and pain. Mm. Do you feel this as well? Yeah, it it's kind of fascinating to see it play out in in comedy at the moment because I think there is you know a wave of comedy that's very confessional and maybe even mm. towing the line between you know drama and comedy where there mm. are one person shows where you know they mm. start out lighter and then it takes it to a much more serious place or maybe the whole thing is like a little bit more somber than than the usual comedy special and it is interesting just to see the way people react where some people mm. say oh well that's not a comedy special like a comedy special is just jokes and to me I'm kind of like well I think that limits it as an art form to say it can mm. only look this one mm. way but I also understand the perspective of of people who are like I don't want to just you know regurgitate my trauma for the stage like I mm. go to the stage to forget about my trauma so I I mm. think it can go either way. It's just giving mm. people the freedom to say, like, take your pain and make it whatever you want it to be. But yeah. it doesn't have to look yeah. one way. Yeah, yeah. I think you said that as well on the on the same documentary that comedy is a way to transform your darkest thoughts into a form that gives them a little less power. Yeah. And I thought that was really beautiful. Yeah. I mean, for me, it is it, some days it's kind of like 
I'm like, in talking about these things, did I actually give them more real estate in my brain? I don't <laughs> think that, but I think, you know, anytime you turn your life into art or like part of your work, it is like, are you, are you giving it more credence or are you like, you know, adding it to people's idea about you? And what does that, what mm. does that do to your sense of self? Like, I think I'm mm. constantly wrestling with those kinds of questions. I also think something you said earlier about, you know, when you think about the rest of the world and you're like, oh my God, what do you do with a brain that isn't kind of taken over by anxiety? You know, how, how is it that the rest of the world, you know, isn't like this? I actually think that most people suffer from some form of anxiety, depression. It might not be like debilitating and you can't right. function or whatever. But I think as if you are human and if you live in this world, right. you will suffer from those things. That's extremely natural. Yeah. But I think most people do not discuss it. Yeah. Maybe never accept it to themselves, let alone to other people. I just think comedians or artists or writers are just a little bit more open about suffering than other people are, I think. Yeah, I think so. And uh, along those lines, I think I think there is a sort of status quo way of being in society. Like it might differ a little between, you know, like India or the UK or the US. Mm. But I think there is like, like we were talking about earlier, just this idea of like you, the world is hard for everyone and you get through it and you don't need to like, air your pain for everyone because everyone's yes. in some kind of pain but yes. yeah I, I just think I don't know this idea that you never show it to anyone like I, I'm I don't know if that's like a capitalist thing where it's sort of like just mm. keep moving forward just keep producing mm. or or just like yeah a kind of social keeping up appearances thing but it does feel like there is some sort of mandate that everyone has like you need to if you someone asks how you're doing, you say, oh, good, good. Fine. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> I've been tempted to answer differently, but I never have dared to. Yeah. You know, if somebody says that, that usual question, how are you doing? I'm like, oh, I'm actually feeling really shit. Right. <laughs> then you, you know? Right. But I've never really done that. I know. I feel like maybe someone, I feel like I've had that sometimes with other comedians where someone will come in with a sort of distinctly... Mm off energy or something where they are going yeah. through something and they won't try to hide it. And you still mm. kind of see the panic in everyone else's mm. faces of like, <laughs> what do we do? What's go Why did they break the code? Like what's going on? <laughs> and I also thought it was interesting during the pandemic where there was sort of became a shorthand where everyone's like, how are you doing? And, and you don't have to say good. Cause obviously we're all yeah. really sad, yeah. but even that became a yeah. sort of like pat way of, handling all yes. of it you know yes 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 I'm not sure if it's a is it a capitalist thing I think to deny that or is it I'm thinking of like India mm. in growing up in India living in India it wasn't even a concept like nobody I knew discussed right mental health issues like even during some of the hardest times in my life like during my mom's death and I was just in a really bad place mm. it just there was no room to talk about it. There were yeah. no words. There was no language. Right. It's just completely not included. So much so that someone, an Indian friend once said to me that Indians don't get mental health issues. <laughs> 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 we just don't. You know, I'm like, okay. <laughs> yeah, is, I think um, that level of just like 
refusal to engage yes. is like it yes. can, like denial can be a powerful thing like I think some people yeah. really I even think my dad on some level is just like I don't believe in depression like I don't know what that yeah. is but yeah I think the brain is a powerful thing and yeah like you're yeah. saying I think people are wrestling with these things but you can sometimes convince yourself you know you're not if you really yeah. don't want to yeah have to excavate any of those layers. Well, they'll say stuff like, oh, I just like to keep busy. Right. Every time I start to feel something, I'll just keep busy. Yeah. And we know that that's a classic kind of right. denial right. thing, isn't right. it? It's like, okay, let me just get really, really busy so I don't have to feel this feeling that's extremely uncomfortable. Yeah. Right. But then it's like, they, then they can't ever stop. Like, the, yes. yeah. And again, look, I always think this thing about um, the way we see people who are busy and together and have it together mm -hmm. let's put quote unquote and then on the other side there's people who suffer from anxiety and depression and haven't got it together I'm doing air quotes it's right. a podcast but where one is perceived as oh my god there's something wrong with them and the other lot are perceived as good functioning human beings yeah I mean and I'll, actually that's not true right and I'll right? notice that impulse even in myself where I'll be like oh, well, at least she's the productive kind of depressive where she still wrote a book <laughs> while she was like, yeah, maybe she had a hard time, but she has a book and I had a hard time and I have no book. You know, like there's still that weird competitiveness and that maybe probably is yes. a capitalist impulse yeah. to be like, well, what did yes. you produce from your pain? <laughs> yes, that's so true. It wasn't enough that I just lay in bed and just like, you know, watched shitty movies for a week. Like, what did I do with it? Right. How did I channel my pain into this beautiful creative product right 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 and I think <laughs> real uh, yeah I think like the real messiness of mental illness is like there isn't always like a nice shiny yeah. product at the end of it yeah or a nice Instagram quote you can put <laughs> right. on it and make yourself feel better right right <laughs> doesn't exist what's it been for other people who kind of respond to this comedy that you do specifically around mental health or any of the other stuff have other people come up to you and said how it has it helped them in any yeah way? I'll get like I'll still get messages from people who will just be like I you know I listened to your album or like I watched your special where you talked about this and it made me feel like less alone and yeah that's it means so much to me because I think I kind of assume now there's so much content and there's so many people freely mm. talking about everything that to kind of still reach out and connect with someone like it feels very kind of humbling to to mm. know that you can still have that impact on someone just by sharing your own experience mm. absolutely and I guess when someone sees you you're a successful comedian you've, you're on these amazing shows and you're still sitting there talking about you know I feel like this or this you know I couldn't get out of bed or whatever it might be I guess it normalizes it for a lot of people that otherwise wouldn't think of it as normal. Yeah. You know, and we don't see many brown women saying these things. I don't know many who kind of openly talk about it because I, I still believe like in our culture, it's perceived as a weakness somewhere. Yeah. You know, I'm sure it helps a lot of people. Yeah. I mean, I think I notice now just like in doing shows like local comedy shows, I have noticed like a lot more young South Asian women who are pretty openly talking about, yeah, like their mental illness or their sexuality. And so I am kind mm. of excited to see that the next generation maybe is kind of mm. further ahead in a lot of that. Mm. And that is mm. very different from when I started. So that's kind of 
cool to see the the needle moving in that way. Yeah, and I'm sure you've helped it move a little bit. I'm <laughs> so sure. It's, yeah, it's a very mixed message when someone's like, "I I've been watching you since middle school, and I'm so inspired." <laughs> You're like, "Thank you," but also, "Ow, ouch." <laughs> what have you got coming up, Aparna? Um, in terms of work and shows and yeah funnily enough I I mentioned writing a book I have a book coming out um, it took me a very Ooh. long time to write but it's a book of essays uh, and the overarching theme is imposter syndrome and how I've sort of wrestled with it in pretty much every area of my life mm. yeah so that is coming out in September fantastic what's it called it's called unreliable narrator <laughs> I like that what would you Say, say Aparna, five years old, was sitting here with us today, mm -hmm. right? What would you say to her? I think I would say that, um, like, I realize the world seems like a very scary place and and it's okay to feel scared and, and you still belong here and it's okay to also just tell people you're scared because there isn't shame in that or or any like it doesn't make you any less of a person to know that maybe you approach the world in a more cautious way than the next person and that that's okay yeah yeah yeah, yeah. I like that finally have you got any words for listeners of Masala podcast yeah I mean I think going back to what we were saying just about like being having the freedom to express your own struggle but then you also do not have to monetize your struggle or like make sure your struggle gets enough likes like that isn't <laughs> isn't the point of yeah trying to be a full person like I think sometimes on the internet especially everyone is like trying to be authentic and and I think even when you're trying to be th three-dimensional on the internet you still can be flattened in a way so mm. it's important to kind of also have these conversations in person with people you love and yeah and not feel the pressure to monetize everything I guess. yes yes no that's beautiful thank you Aparna for sitting with me chatting with me being so open about you know your thoughts and your own struggles and your journey it's been an absolutely wonderful conversation yeah no I appreciate all the thoughtful questions it's been lovely thank you for listening to Masala Podcast Masala Podcast is part of my platform, Soul Sutras, dedicated to celebrating and supporting South Asian women. This is a space for all of us bad babies who don't do as we're told. This is where we get to celebrate our culture our way and be exactly who we want to be. I'd love to hear from you. Get in touch via email at soulsutras.co.uk or my website, soulsutras.co.uk. I'm also on Instagram and Twitter. Just look for Soul Sutras. Masala Podcast was created and presented by me, Sangeeta Pillai, produced by Anushka Tate, opening music by Sunny Robertson. Besharam, Batamiz, Gandhi, Hi Hi, Bad Betty. I wanted to share another show that I love called Miha Podcast. It's an award-winning podcast about the stories of daughters of immigrants from all over the world. 
The podcast features immigration stories of different families and how immigration changes lives. Their new season, Miha on the Mic, is great. I was on one of their episodes and I really enjoyed it. If you'd like to listen to Miha podcast, it's available on all podcasting platforms.